Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Professor George, thank you so much for agreeing to having this conversation. Um, Let me start by saying that this is a real privilege for me because uh, I run a Life Issues Leadership Training Week around New Zealand and Australia. And every year when we uh, get to the end of that week, one of the things I always do is give a list of recommended reading. And the book that you co-authored with Christopher Tollefson, Embryo, A Defense of Life, is at the top of that list, is one of the recommended uh, books for, for, uh, for a, uh, one of the best natural law arguments for embryonic personhood. So it's a bit of a privilege for me to be able to have this conversation with you today. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you to say that, and it's an honor to be on your uh, show. There's an interesting story to, uh, to that book. It, um, it came to mind as something to do when I was serving on the U.S. President's Council on Bioethics in 2002 under the administration of President George W. Bush. Yes. And of course, the great bioethical issue at that uh, moment was embryonic stem cell research. That's right. So the president wanted to know, well, what is a human embryo? Yeah. Is it a potential human being? Is it a cluster of uh, undifferentiated cells that may some day, if everything goes right, serve as the enhance for creating a human being? Uh, is it a human being? Uh, what is it? The president needed to know in order to, um, uh, to make crucial decisions about the funding of embryonic uh, stem cell research, which of course involves the destruction of embryos. And uh, so it seemed pretty clear to me just from my own research in the science that what we have here is an embryonic human being, a human being at the embryonic stage, the earliest stage of his or her natural development. I say his or her because sex is, of course, determined in the human from the very beginning, from the earliest embryonic uh, stage. So I was doing this work really by way of of, um, uh, advising uh, the president. And it became clear that there was just a tremendous need for public education. So some of the the speeches and uh, other things that I was doing became the ingredients for that book. And Chris Tollefson, who's a wonderful philosopher with whom I'd worked before, uh, decided to join me uh, in the project. And we ended up producing that book, which is now in its uh, second edition with an appendix and an updating of the of the science. And uh, there's also a little uh, debate in the end. We in the second edition of the book, we publish a critical review together with our answer of the critical review that appeared in the New York Times. Well, there you go. And as I always say to people, it's the go-to book. So if you haven't read it, you should have read it by now. Um, Tell me, let's talk a little bit about America to start with. Um, Here in little old New Zealand, you would, if you just watch the mainstream media, you would think that sort of ever since 2016, Americans have been perhaps living under some sort of dystopian nightmare. Uh, But how, in your opinion, how do you think the Trump presidency is actually experienced and viewed by perhaps those outside the beltway, outside the chattering classes? How do you think the ordinary American experience that. In the United States is very deeply divided. And there's an interesting question of to what extent uh, the Trump phenomenon is a symptom of a deeper divide or to what extent it's the source of the division. I- I'm inclined to think the former. Uh, there's a deep divide in American uh, culture along moral and religious uh, lines. And the Trump phenomenon is really a, a product of that uh, of that polarization. But there are responsible people who, who see it differently and and think that we were basically a unified people until Trump came along and somehow or another he got himself elected president of the United States. Nobody expected such a thing uh, to happen. And then he has driven the uh, driven the division. 
Tell me, there's a lot of talk about um, Supreme Court nominations, and it seems that both sides are, are, are a lot of scrutiny on that aspect of things. Do you think that perhaps that could actually turn out to be one of the most important impacts of this presidency, for good or for ill? Oh, no question about it. Uh, the margin of victory for Trump came as a result of his pledge to appoint first-rate constitutionalist uh, judges. Uh, the, the the country for much too long has been run, essentially, by the courts. Yes, yeah. uh, legi- le- 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 legislative decisions, or what should be legislative decisions, what would be legislative decisions in a lot of other places, are made by the courts here, and that's unjustifiable. Uh, it's really a usurpation of legislative authority by the uh, uh, by the courts, whether you like the decisions that they make or or not. They're just overstepping their authority. Uh, they're veering out of their lane. Yeah. And so there was a lot of pent up uh, demand, as it were, uh, for reform of the judiciary. And by proposing to appoint constitutionalist judges who would stay in their lane and would not usurp legislative authority, Trump managed to get himself elected, and uh, he has been very careful uh, not to deviate uh, from that promise, not to uh, uh, disappoint the core constituency that that maybe held their nose because they don't like his personal character or his history or his background, but uh, were willing to hold their nose and vote for him because he promised uh, a reformed judiciary. The issue is is on the table again. And uh, he is again saying, you need to reelect me because look at the great judges I've given you and I'm going to give you more great judges. Uh, And if you allow Joe Biden to be elected, he's going to go back to the old ways with the Democratic Party and the progressive left and give you uh, judges who will usurp the authority of the the people and impose uh, in the name of the Constitution all sorts of uh, left wing foolishness. One of the things that uh, that we've heard about or, or that academics have talked about uh, is this idea of uh, private preference and public preference. Tamir Kuran, uh, the great uh, Czechoslovakian statesman Václav Havel, talked, you know, used to tell the story about the greengrocer who had the, the sign in his store under communism about supporting the party but didn't really believe it personally. Do you, do you think that that sort of private preference, public preference is going to play out in the upcoming election where people will say one thing publicly, then they get into the polling booth and they do something else privately that they don't express in public? There's absolutely no reason to think that that won't happen this time because it did happen last time. Yes. Uh, the, the polling did not show that Trump was going to win the presidency, that he was going to defeat Hillary Clinton. But uh, sure enough, he he did. Uh, Trump under polls because people in many cases are unwilling to reveal to uh, the uh, uh, those taking the polls that they're supporting Trump. And And they're worried about that uh, for many reasons, including the fact that the divide we have in the United States of America, this cultural divide, is an elite popular divide. Trump appeals to to the to to ordinary people, to working class people, uh, to that's that's his base. Um, He is very unpopular, wildly unpopular among elites. And of course, elites control the institutions of culture. That's what they do. Uh, if you look at journalism, entertainment, education, uh, business, you'll find that uh, that obviously elites control those things and they are very anti-Trump. The big corporations are very anti-Trump. Uh, so people, ordinary people who worry about their jobs and their futures are unwilling uh, to let uh, their preferences be known uh, lest they suffer personal or professional 
uh, retaliation or their children suffer retaliation. It's the greengrocer phenomenon in Hobble's story. Yeah. Uh, and so they don't they don't tell uh, poll takers that that they're going to vote for Trump and then they and then they vote for Trump. Trump may very well be reelected, uh, even if the polling um, uh, seems to indicate that he's headed for defeat. Beyond the Trump presidency, it does seem that there is a moment of crisis right now in the United States. Now, if people are aware of their American history, they'll probably know that this is it's not unusual for these types of uh, cultural crisis moments to to overflow in the American life. Uh, the War of Independence, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, which obviously goes back several decades before even the 50s and 60s, the failed Weather Underground Revolution. Um, and then we had, what, about 40 years or so of stability through the 80s onwards, but now we're in one of these moments again. Do you think this is one of those pressure valve moments that the American Republic sort of regularly has and then recovers from? Or is this more like, I don't know, a Mount Vesuvius moment where it erupts and Pompeii comes to an end and, and life has changed as we know it? Uh, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I don't. And I don't know that there is an answer to that question. Human affairs are highly contingent. Uh, there is no Hegelian uh, dialectic <laughs> of history. History is not determined. There are facts out there that, if only we knew them, uh, we could uh, we could predict the yeah. we could predict the future. Uh, we'll know pretty well uh, whenever we get a uh, a result in the presidential election, which might not be the night of the election, uh, right. given the uh, the COVID uh, impact on uh, voting and so forth. But whenever we find out whether Donald Trump has been uh, reelected. Uh, we'll, we'll get some indication of of, uh, of whether this is Mount Vesuvius. Uh, I would expect that there would be a very, very big uh, reaction, including a lot of activity in the streets that I hope won't be violent. We're getting violence now in our cities, of course. Um, I hope it won't be violent, but uh, if it is and if it becomes very violent, uh, well, Vesuvius will have erupted. Yes. Uh, let, let's talk about now ethics, because this is one of your specialty areas. Um, it seems to me when I look around the world that there is perhaps an increasing, particularly through the courts probably, uh, what I, you might call a, a bastardization of human rights. And what I mean by that is we're seeing things like for example, for, for several decades now, there's been a fight to claim abortion as a human right. There was uh, the Supreme Court, oh, no, sorry, the court case in Canada uh, about four or five years ago, which legalised euthanasia, where they successfully argued that assisted suicide was part of the right to life, and, and being denied that was a violation of your right to life. Do you think this kind of, uh, what we're seeing now, even in the public square around misinterpreting what human rights are and what they're not, is... Is it representative of a loss of moral philosophy as opposed to just a disagreement about what is moral or not? Is there something deeper missing here now? How Orwellian it is yeah, yeah. to say that uh, the right to assisted suicide is part of the right to life, or I should say the so-called right to assisted suicide. Yeah. Of course, we know what actually happens. People come under all sorts of pressure uh, from relatives, from governments who are worried about spending, uh, from the healthcare system, healthcare professionals, every manner of ghoul. Yeah. People come under all sorts of pressure to exercise this precious right, uh, right of theirs to uh, uh, to uh, death with dignity or whatever uh, euphemism or characterization they want to use. But it is positively uh, or Orwellian. Um, my dear friend, uh, the former chief rabbi of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, yeah makes a terribly important point about anti-Semitism that I think is relevant more broadly. Uh, Rabbi Sachs says, you know, if you look at the history of anti-Semitism, you find the following. 
it will always be justified in whatever the dominant discourse of the day happens to be. So in the medieval period, when theological discourse was dominant, uh, hatred of Jews was uh, justified in the, in the language of theology. Yes. Uh, during the Enlightenment, uh, when uh, uh, science was uh, glorified in so-called age of reason, uh, age of uh, uh, enlightenment, uh, enlightenment terms and science and uh, so forth was the justification for uh, anti-Semitism of various sorts. Jews could be citizens, but so long as they stopped being Jews, yes, yeah, <laughs> they'd be equal citizens. But as long as they left their 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 Jewish identities uh, behind uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, with the rise of uh, of the nation states and nationalism, of course, anti-Semitism uh, is expressed in the language of nationalism, culminating in the horrible nightmare of Hitler and the, and the Holocaust. What Jonathan says of anti-Semitism is true of just about every other evil you can think of as well. Yeah. People will justify that evil and the evil doing in the dominant discourse of the day. So now let's ask ourselves, what is the dominant discourse today? Well, it is, as it happens, the discourse in which we now find, yes, you guessed it, anti-Semitism being defended, the language of human rights. Yeah. But it's also the discourse in which we find abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and every other manner of evil being defended. We shouldn't be surprised by this. The dominant discourse will always be the discourse in which we justify whatever evils we human beings want to do. And therefore, it's important not to allow ourselves to be intimidated by the hijacking of the discourse by those who do hijack the discourse in order to uh, uh, advance policies whether it's anti-Semitism or abortion, that are incompatible with the fundamental principle of the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. We need to keep our eyes on the prize. Yeah. We need to keep our eyes on the true principle. That is the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. What's wrong with anti-Semitism? What's wrong with abortion? They violate that principle. Same for assisted suicide. Same for euthanasia. Uh, the true human right is the right of every member of the human family, irrespective of race or sex or ethnicity, to be sure, but also and equally irrespective of age or size or stage of development or condition of de dependency or location or anything else, to be treated under the law with dignity and indeed equal dignity. So um, let's not be intimidated here. Let's not be tricked. Let's not be fooled. They can hijack the discourse, but we're on to them. We know there is no human right to kill an unborn baby anymore. There's a human right to kill a newborn baby or a human right to kill a 14-year-old. Yeah. It is rather a violation of human rights. Tell me, one thing that does seem to be under attack a lot more these days is the right to freedom of conscience. It seems that there is certainly at the at best, you'd say, a narrowing or an attempt to narrow that very, very narrowly. Uh, and in a lot of cases now, a complete removal of, of the right to freedom of conscience. Why do you think that is going on? Well, it's because uh, there is a competing religion, hmm. 
And uh, that religion might be called expressive individualism, it might be, which was the term favored by the sociologist, famous sociologist Robert Bella, the late Robert Bella. It might be called secular progressivism. Uh, there are various labels uh, for it, but it functions like a religion. It's a source of, of meaning. It's got a set of dogmas. Uh, indeed, it's got a lot of the other indicia of uh, of, of religions, uh, saints and demons and holy days and sacraments and That's so fun. forth. And uh, it's a militant religion. Not all religions are militant, uh, at least in the normal sense of that term. Uh, it's a fundamentalist religion. Not all religions are fundamentalists, or not all traditions of all religions are fundamentalists. Most religions have their fundamentalist uh, uh, traditions within them. Uh, but usually not the mainstream. Well, this uh, religion is so uh, dominant among uh, Western elites, uh, is militant, and for many people it's a fundamentalist faith. And for militants and fundamentalists, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or secular progressive or utilitarian or Marxist, whatever their <laughs> ideology or quasi-religion is, yeah. when they're militant and fundamentalist, they brook no dissent they cannot allow for people's conscience or freedom of speech or any other basic civil liberties. They want conformity. They want groupthink. They want people to denounce anybody who steps out of line. Uh, they want to uh, uh, lower the hammer on anybody who challenges the sacred orthodoxies, the sacred teachings. Uh, they want to make you not only uh, be silent about what you do believe, they want to force you to say things you don't believe. Yeah. Uh, this is where this ideology, this pseudo-religion, veers from merely being authoritarian, which is bad enough, in the direction now of being totalitarian. Ordinary authoritarians are content to stop people from saying what they believe to be true. Yes. Totalitarians can't stop there. They've got to force people to say things they believe to be false. It seems to me that perhaps this is aided a little bit too by the state of perhaps what goes on in the public square where it feels to me a little bit like in the minds of a lot of ordinary everyday folk that freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, it seems to be falling victim to an ideology that wants to narrow it down to, to being just about freedom of worship. So you go somewhere on a Sunday morning, keep it to yourself or freedom of thought. You can think these ideas in your head, but you can't act on them. So if you're a doctor who says, well, my religious beliefs, my conscience beliefs say I cannot participate in the act of abortion or even refer for that, all of a sudden people are now screaming at you, well, you shouldn't be a doctor. You shouldn't allowed to be licensed for that. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh, it's a completely fair assessment. Uh, here's the thing about this particular militant fundamentalist pseudo-religion, this ideology. One of its dogmas is not only that it should have hegemony in the public square, but that competing comprehensive views, if I can borrow a phrase from uh, the late great uh, political philosopher at Harvard, John Rawls, yes. competing comprehensive views, be they secular or religious, certainly religious ones like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, that competing comprehensive views must be restricted to the private precincts of the home or house of worship. So freedom of religion on this account is restricted to saying your prayers uh, with the family around the dinner table or on your knees at bedtime or in the mosque or in the synagogue or in the church. 
but it's not allowed to enter the public square and compete with the hegemonic governing ideology of secular progressivism or expressive individualism or whatever you uh, you want to call it. Now, why should anybody of any competing faith, again, secular or religious, accept those terms? There's absolutely no reason That's to right. accept those terms. And certainly religious folk in the traditional sense, Muslims and Christians and Jews, should say, no, we're not buying that, <laughs> that set of rules. Who made those rules? I mean, who made you dictator of the world that you get to make the rule? You think you're God? Right. Those aren't the rules. We compete fairly in the public square with you. You have every right to be there. We don't have any authority to shut you down because your teachings are contrary to our religion. But you have no authority to shut us down. Fair fight in the public square for the allegiance of our citizens. You make your arguments, we'll make our arguments, and then we're going to use the processes of deliberative democracy to resolve the questions until they get opened back up in the ordinary institutions of democratic uh, governance for reconsideration, if indeed they they do. Um, this idea that uh, that secular progressive ideology counts as neutrality yeah. is deeply foolish. Let's talk about that for a moment. You, you, you wrote a book, Making Men Moral, where you made the case that we need to defend morals, laws, if you like to want to call them something. And uh, it seems to me that that's something that is very consistent with the, the Burkean tradition of conservatism. But one of the things that worries me of late is it seems that more and more it feels like conservatism has been hijacked by perhaps libertarianism or more libertine approach to moral questions. And, and, and perhaps we're no longer bringing that great tradition uh, of ethics and the intellectual heft that was once there to these debates, if we're even turning up at all. Do you think that that's something concerning? Well, there are different schools of conservatism, and then there are different um, political philosophies, um, that some of which, though not conservative, share certain conservative uh, principles, mm -hmm. at least to some extent. Um, I don't think libertarianism is just plain wrong. I, I as, as critical as I have been, as you know, beginning with that first book of mine, Making Men Moral, Civil Liberties and Public Morality, I've been about as critical of libertarianism as uh, anybody could be. And yet I'm a respectful and even admiring critic of libertarianism because I think that it is uh, a tradition that teaches some very important truths. What happens is it neglects some very important truths. <laughs> additional truths. It's right as far as it, in, in what it affirms, it's, it's, it's wrong in not affirming more important truths. Uh, additional, I should say, not, not in the sense of more important than the ones it does affirm. I mean, additional truths. So uh, let me be a little more specific and, and clear. Freedom is a very important value. The libertarians are 100% right about that. It's a yeah. terribly important value. And in the face of the challenges we have from Marxist and fascist and utilitarian uh, and other ideologies that tend to undervalue freedom, it's really important to wave the flag of freedom. And I'll stand alongside shoulder to shoulder with my libertarian brothers and sisters and stand up for uh, freedom. But freedom's not the whole picture. There are other principles as well. Uh, there's got to be a place for the right place for equality. Not a quality of outcomes, yeah. but certainly a quality under the law. Libertarians, I think, ordinarily do agree with that. But also the principle of equal human dignity, which means we have to take seriously the dignity of each and every member of the human family, including the child in the womb. Yes. Uh, many libertarians go off the rails there. They, they, they opt for, they uh, go for supporting abortion, and they should. Not all, 
but 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 many do. Um, so uh, I, I think that uh, libertarianism is not something that should just be straightforwardly rejected. And I think the libertarian voice in the public square is a very important and valuable voice. And they have every right to be there. And I certainly don't want to shut them down. I think they belong there every bit as much as I and other traditional uh, conservatives' voices uh, belong there. They're not Burkeans. I tend more toward the Burkean uh, side. But nevertheless, they're cousins, if not brothers. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to have them there. Same in some respects for folks on the social democratic side. Yes. Or course. even the socialist side. That principle that they appeal to of equality that's true too. There is a very important principle, the equal dignity of human beings. I wish they were more resolute and consistent in affirming it. Uh, people who believe in equality should not be backing abortion or assisted suicide or euthanasia or eugenics. Quite the contrary. And of course. When they move from equality of opportunity to equality of result, well, then we're on the road to the abolition of liberty, and that's when the libertarian voice really does need to be heard and integrated into uh, a sound conservative uh, point of view. So I like to think that, that we traditional conservatives represent something of the golden mean between the extremes of uh, social democracy on the one side or even socialism and libertarianism um, uh, on the other side. We, we don't think that they're just straightforwardly wrong in every respect. We think they're right about some things, but uh, we want to draw you know, on some of the truths that they uh, assert in, in each case and, uh, and highlight some that they neglect. Tell me, uh, a few years ago, there was, uh, I think it was the Journal of Medical Ethics dedicated an entire edition to the debate, should infanticide be, is it, is it moral? And I, and I believe you wrote a paper in that staunchly opposing that view and saying it's not moral. And I remember at the time you posted on uh, social media about this and, and your comment, I think, was very enlightening where you said, is anyone else concerned about the fact we're even having this debate in public? Do you think that this radical individualism is the, the driving cause of of such a nonchalant public discussion of such a grave and obvious evil? Well, uh, what I uh, like about uh, the work, for example, of Peter Singer or Michael Tooley, other defenders of infanticide, is uh, its honesty and uh, its integrity. Uh, certainly, I think the position that they advocate, uh, the, the, moral, the moral uh correctness or moral rightness in some cases of killing unborn, I'm sorry, killing newborn infants, not just yeah. unborn babies, but newborn babies. I think it's a hideous position from a moral point of view, and I'll oppose it and fight it in the public square with every breath uh, in my body, every amount of uh, uh, energy I've got. And yet, at least they are consistent and they're not science deniers. Yeah. Singer is right, and I agree with him when he says that the very considerations and principles that justify abortion, if any do, equally justify infanticide. He's 100% right about that. The difference between us is that he thinks that abortion and infanticide are justified, yeah. and I think both are unjustified. But we both got consistent positions as against the vast majority of people who call themselves pro-choice, mm -hmm. who want to have it both ways, who want to be against abort, uh, I'm sorry, against infanticide, but in favor of abortion. Well, when I tell them that's inconsistent, they won't listen to me, but maybe they'll listen to Peter Singer, who's a fellow <laughs> supporter of abortion, because he's telling them the truth. The other thing is someone like Peter, or who's my colleague here at Princeton, and I know well, uh, or, or Michael Tooley, or the others who defended abortion in that 
uh, issue of, I'm sorry, defended infanticide in that issue of uh, the Journal of Medical Ethics that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. The other good thing about them is they're not science deniers. They don't falsely claim, as so many pro-abortion people do, that we don't know when life begins, or we don't know when the life of a new human being begins, or there's some great mystery of science or metaphysics about whether a human fetus is in fact a human being. All of these people, begin with, beginning with Peter Singer, will tell you we certainly do know that the uh, developing human fetus is a human being, as much a human being as a two-year-old or a 19-year-old or a 90-year-old. The only question is, does that human being have dignity and a right to life? Either all human beings do, that's my position, that's your position, which means that we should be um, making sure we have the mantle of legal protection around every single member of the human family from conception to death, or some human beings have dignity and others don't. That's Peter's position. Now, what could give some human beings dignity and others not? Well, Peter has the argument that some are persons and some are not yet persons or are no longer persons or aren't, never will be, never were uh, persons that congenitally, severely, cognitively disabled, for example. Um, he does not believe in the principle of, of equal dignity or the principle of human rights. He's, he'd be the first to tell you that. Uh, I do. Yes. But... As, as, as profound as our disagreement is on that, we agree on the science. We agree on the point that so many pro-choice people want to hide or deny. And that is, as a matter of fact, every child from the very earliest developmental stage, beginning in the earliest embryonic stage, is a living member of the species Homo sapiens, is a human being. There is no mystery here about what it is that is developing in mom's womb. Yeah. That is a human child, a, a member of the human family. Is radical individualism, you think, becoming more and more like the naked emperor? And what I mean by that is it seems there are so many inconsistencies now when we think about lawmaking. So, for example, during the recent marriage debate which swept the West and the redefinition of marriage, we were told that arguments around the well-being of children were invalid. We were told that, no, the future wasn't relevant. Don't think about the impact of this on future generations. But when it comes to environmentalism, perhaps the secular spirituality of the day, it's all about children. In fact, they have currently a child as the, as the very representative spokesperson for that, and it's all about your obligation to future generations. Suddenly they've become very Burkean in their thought. Do you think it's starting to become the naked emperor where we're starting to set up individual beliefs against individual beliefs and we're giving special rights and powers to some over the others for no real good reason? It's another it's an another interesting feature of uh, modern secular progressive ideology. Uh, it's both radically individualistic hmm. in a way that I think undermines its credibility and statist in a way that undermines its credibility. It it uh, it incorporates some of the worst features of libertarianism and some of the worst features of uh, collectivism, Marxist or other forms of, of, of collectivism. So it can be uh, almost totalitarian uh, when it comes to something like uh, climate. You know, suddenly we're going to control people's lives in very 
detailed and minute ways because we need to save the planet. This is a sort of eschatological element of this new religion. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, you know, people need to be able to be free of any of the traditional norms that protected the institutions of marriage and the family. The uh, German Ethics Council, the National Ethics Council in Germany, has uh, even uh, overwhelmingly voted with just a few dissenters. Uh, to uh, urge uh, the, the German legislature uh, to um, uh, abolish uh, adult incest laws, uh, laws that prohibit uh, sexual relations between um, parents and their adult children or between adult uh, siblings. So we have the radical individualism on the one hand and the collectivism on the, on the other hand, uh, and both are erroneous, both are wildly wrong. Let's uh, talk now about the current state of academic life and, and public debate in general. As someone who is in this space, how toxic do you think is campus culture right now, particularly in regard to open and free dialogue? Well, we've obviously got a problem in the United States, and my understanding is that we're not alone here. Um, I talked about that divide between um, uh, elite and popular culture earlier, and of course education is uh, one of the most important institutions of culture, and it's pretty much in the control of, uh, of elites. And elites aren't, uh, aren't actually divided amongst themselves much on ideology. On the whole, they've bought right into and fully bought into um, secular progressive ideology to expressive individualism. And uh, they're quite intolerant of uh, dissent. And that certainly extends to campuses as well. So uh, people are terrified about expressing their uh, minds, uh, expressing their views, speaking their minds when their beliefs put them at odds with any of the dogmas of the uh, of the new pseudo-religion. Uh, some people have been punished, in some cases severely, even losing their uh, positions in universities because they've expressed public dissent uh, from, um, from these dogmas and orthodoxies. Uh, the pressure is uh, there not only to um, uh, keep your mouth shut, but increasingly there's pressure to say the right words. You have to not only be silent, you, that's not good enough. Uh, you have to make sure that you affirm in a very public way uh, these dogmas of secular progressivism. If you are to be admitted to the university as a student or if you are to get a job as a, a faculty member or have any sort of a, a career uh, in the university, sometimes uh, on job applications now in the United States at universities, you're supposed to fill in a section of a form that says, Tell us how you will contribute to diversity and, and inclusion. Now, diversity and inclusion sound very nice. Uh, who's against diversity and inclusion? Of course, uh, uh, I'll tell you who's against diversity. Secular progressives. They don't want any diversity of opinion. You have to agree That's with right. them 100% or, or, or you're out. And that is the very point of this exercise. It's meant to weed out anybody who does dissent from their particular version or vision of uh, of equity and inclusion or diversity and inclusion so this is a this is a bad thing it's toxic for the cause of education uh its unfairness is really secondary in my mind although that's very important it is unfair it's unfair to conservatives it's unfair to traditional religious believers it's unfair to a lot of people but i say it's secondary in my mind because primary in my mind is as an academic myself as someone who's committed to the scholarly vocation and to the institutions of of truth-seeking colleges and universities um, what's primary in my mind is the toxicity of this kind of groupthink to the truth-seeking process, yeah. to the process of educating people, young people in particular, to be true truth-seekers themselves and to be lifelong uh, learners. 
Indoctrination is not teaching. Indeed, it's the very opposite of teaching. Um, and too much of what's going on in colleges and universities in my own country, and my understanding, again, alas, is that we're not alone in this, too much of what goes on really is indoctrination. And too often people are deterred from pursuing lines of inquiry because they're frightened that the results that they would publish would get them in trouble and jeopardize their own professional uh, futures. You cannot run colleges and universities as authentic, truth-seeking, knowledge-seeking institutions in that kind of atmosphere of intolerance and uh, intimidation. You just cannot do it any more than you can run a democratic regime or a democratic republic where people feel um, uh, afraid uh, or are being bullied and intimidated uh, into not speaking their minds. One of the things that I, I'm a little bit concerned by is the fact that a lot of people, I think, initially thought when this started to evolve, well, it's just an on-campus problem. But I, I get a sense that this is starting to perhaps move beyond campus life now. And I almost see a perfect storm in the sense that, you know, it's not unusual to have ideological firebrands around a campus, but then you'd probably leave campus. Life was a little bit harder or you'd get married and have a few kids and it would sort of temper those worst excesses. But I see now in wider society, there's less marriage and family life. We've got social media, which allows you to be a firebrand anytime, anywhere you like. And also we're nurturing a culture of fragility in people. Uh, does that concern you? Do you think this is ever going to seep off campus? Oh, there's no question it already has. Uh, I warned people 20 years ago about this. Uh, I would often hear parents and others say, well, it doesn't matter so much that kids are being indoctrinated and their heads filled with nonsense and ideology or that they're falling into groupthink on university campuses. Uh, it's not anything to worry about because they're just going through a stage. It's a four-year college in the U.S. is four years. I'm not sure what it is in New Zealand, but yeah. but they're going through this four-year period when they'll they'll get this out of their bloodstreams, and then they'll become adults and they'll have jobs and responsibilities and they'll have to pay taxes and they'll have families and they'll have children to bring up and and that will moderate them and uh, they'll they they'll, it'll even move them in a more kind of sort of conservative uh, direction it will make them more responsible i warn people that's just not the way it works once their heads are stuffed filled with this ideology they will take it out into the world and transform the businesses at which they work it will inform their political decisions it'll transform other institutions they're associated with including the institutions of religion you see how profound an impact secular progressivism has had even on what we in the United States called mainline uh, denominations. Yeah. I knew this was going to happen, and sure enough, it has. And I, 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 I take no joy in, in saying I told you so or, or pointing out that I was right about this. I, 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 I'd give my left arm to be wrong about it. I wish I, were, I, wish I would have been wrong about it. Dr. Cornell West uh, is someone who clearly you and him have, uh, I think, quite a special relationship. And it's one thing I've really appreciated is, is there's just such authentic dialogue between the two of you, some very clear differences and views on all sorts of issues. Um, do you think perhaps we are missing a few more of those elder statesmen, the intellectual giants, which I, I consider both of you part of that tradition, to, to sort of show the way for what a robust and reasoned dialogue can look like? And how do we kind of protect that? Oh, we're missing them, yeah. Now, I, I love my brother Cornell West. He is as dear a friend as I have ever had in my life. Really is like a brother to me. Mm. Uh, no, no two twins were ever closer than Cornell <laughs> and myself. Despite our disagreement, he's the he's the honorary chairman of Democratic Socialists of America, as you pointed out. I'm a sort of old-fashioned Aristotelian, Burkean uh, <laughs> conservative. So obviously, we differ profoundly on policy and political questions, and yet he's got integrity. 
uh, and uh, honesty. Uh, he says what he means. He means what he says. He's not playing a game. He's not just performing. Uh, and he's really interested in the truth. Mm-hmm. And he wants to be corrected where he's in error, just as I want to be corrected when I'm in error. Uh, he cares more for truth than he does for his own opinions. He hasn't fallen so deeply in love with his own opinions that he'd prefer to hold them rather than be proven wrong and get to the truth of things. I would like to be the same way myself. I hope I am. I look to him as an example of that. And we deeply share some values. He believes in the inherent dignity of each and every member of the human family. He's very worried about the abortion issue. You know, he had just fallen into line with the left on that. But, you know, he's not sure that, that, that the left is right about that. He's willing to talk about it, argue with me about it, think about it. I mean, I think he's badly shaken uh, on that, that issue because he does believe in the principle of the inherent dignity of each and every member of the, of, of the human family. Uh, he's worried about the poor and the vulnerable, and we all should be. I certainly am. We might have different approaches to how we lift people up out of poverty. I think markets have have done more to lift people out of poverty than any other economic mechanisms. And so I'm broadly in favor of the free market, properly regulated. I'm I'm not a laissez-faire libertarian, but I'm more in favor of the free market. He's more skeptical of the free market. He thinks government has a bigger role to play. I'm more skeptical of the role of government in lifting people out of poverty. But we're agreed that we want to lift people out of poverty, even if we disagree about about the means. And we can argue and debate and try to get you know, nearer to the truth about what the best means of doing it would be. And of course, we're both Christians. We both share a deep Christian faith. We both believe every human being was fashioned in the very image and likeness of the divine ruler and creator of the universe. So that's a profound point of of, of agreement. And then finally, he is a true civil libertarian. Mm. He would never for a moment think of shutting down anybody as a speaker or a writer or a thinker or advocate in the public square because they disagreed with him. He wants to hear them just as I do. He's as committed to freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, the other basic civil liberties as I am. So we are united in this. And if you've seen the statement that the two of us put out together in 2017 called Truth Seeking Democracy and Freedom of uh, uh, Speech and uh, Discussion, uh, you'll see just how deeply we are united uh, in those civil libertarian principles. Do you think that perhaps we have too much politics then and not enough personhood? What I mean by that is, um, I saw just a couple of days ago, you you posted a video clip of yourself in Cornell West singing, uh, he's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, I know um, you'd love to play the banjo. I myself am a bit of a guitar player We're from an Irish tradition. I've got a friend who plays the fiddle. We get together, have a few whiskeys. It's a bit of goodness, okay. truth and beauty, you know? And things beyond just politics, a life well lived outside of politics. Do you think that's missing now from, it's just politics is everything now? It's a problem. There's no question about it. Uh, Cornell makes the point that if you're going to enter into a political dialogue, you first need to get to know each other as human beings because friendship is not reducible to politics. He says this at every possible opportunity. Uh, The first question is not, are you labor or Tory or are you Democrat or Republican or even are you socialist or libertarian or are you progressive or conservative? The first question is, where do you come from? Uh, tell me about your mom and dad. You have brothers and sisters. Uh, you know what? What traditions did you grow up with, or what traditions did you grow up in? What's important to you? Uh, what What do you think about when it's just you and you're and you're all alone? What's in your head? What's What's on your mind? What are your hopes and fears for yourself, for your family, for your country, for 
for the world. Let's when we when we start out that way, we get to know each other, and we'll we'll find that we're fellow human beings, and we've got common ground and and common and common concerns. Uh, you you obviously read a lot of my work, was very flattering, and I thank you for it. You you then are familiar with what I say to so many of my uh, Christian and Jewish friends. Uh, with respect to our Muslim neighbors, we we now have many more Muslims in the United States than we did when I was was young. And I urge Christian and and Jewish families to reach out to your Muslim neighbors, ask them about themselves, ask them about their hopes and concerns and fears and ideas about the future and what they aspire to and what they want for their children. What you find is they don't want they're not wanting to blow up buildings and kill people. Yeah. They they have the same desires for their children that you have. For, they want their kids to be good people. They want their kids to have moral character. They want their kids to carry on the faith, their their religion. They want their kids to have good careers and live in safe neighborhoods and be kind to each other, just like Christians and Jews do. Well, the same is true across the political divide. You're going to find if we just sit down and treat each other as human beings, we've got some common ground. That's what Cornell and I do. And then we can take it from there and we can start to explore the differences. But when we explore the differences, we won't be thinking of each other as... Hitler and Stalin. Yeah. We'll be thinking each of each other as Tom and Jill and Sally and, and, and Janet. Yeah. Tell me just a couple of quick questions to finish with. Um, we've, we've spent several decades where we've actively pushed faith out of the public square, it seems to me. Um, and one thing that faith gives you is an eternal perspective. It helps you to put the big issues into perspective. But without that, uh, are we now stuck in a space where it's all about the temporal, so it literally becomes a fight to the death because that's all we've got? Do you think faith and the loss of it in the public square has actually contributed to a worsening of the dialogue? Well, there's plenty of faith in the public square, but the question is what sort of faith is it? Mm. Uh, Secular progressivism is a faith. You have to understand that, and it's a militant and fundamentalist faith. The problem is not that uh, we don't have faith in the public square. It's the kind of faith that there's there, and the tendency of that faith to be intolerant and exclusionary when it comes to competing worldviews or completing comprehensive uh, views, uh, including those of, of traditional religions. But you are right that if you look at secular progressive ideology, the horizon is a this-worldly horizon, yeah. which means what's ultimate is the here and now. There's not something beyond the here and now that's the truly ultimate. Yeah, and uh, that, that can make everything at the end a life-and-death struggle. If there's nothing beyond this world um, and nothing in, 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 in a world beyond that provides the criteria for judgment of the affairs of, of this world, then uh, when you lose, it's an, it's an eternal and permanent loss yeah. and it can't be redeemed. So you can't lose. And if that means you've got to destroy the other guy, if that means you have to resort to, uh, use this terrible phrase, any means necessary, then you do it. And you find this with all the terrible secular ideologies, communism, fascism, Nazism. This was the ideology of Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin, which is not to say that contemporary secular progressives are just like Hitler and Stalin and, and Pol Pot. But why were those crimes committed and justified? Because there was no transcendent standard to 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 look to because in this world uh uh you needed to win because there was nothing beyond this world you need you need to make this heaven on earth because there's no heaven anywhere else and as mao zedong is is said to have said (laughs) 
uh, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. So it's 20 million or 30 million or 40 million people, those are the eggs, who've got to be broken, who've got to be killed in order to create heaven on earth. Well, you've just got to do it. That's the by any means necessary part. So perhaps the million dollar question then to wrap this up is, uh, how do people of goodwill nurture and promote civility in discourse and in public life? I guess Aristotle would say you can't do it without virtue and the queen of the virtues is humility. It seems lacking these days. What else practically do you think we can do to actually nurture that? Courage. Yeah. Courage is what we need. That's the absent virtue. That's what we need. People need to be willing to take risks and bear burdens for the sake of goods greater than themselves. Mm. Uh, this is what the great prophets, the great saints, the great heroes of history have exemplified for us, the virtue of courage. Uh, and that's what we're missing. Now, this battle for civility, for decency, uh, for our common humanity, for the sanctity of human life, for the dignity of marriage and the family, this battle may not be winnable in the end. Hmm. Uh, that's up to God. Uh, but I myself think it is winnable, but it can't be won without courage. And it's not a battle that will be won without casualties. Like any great struggle, any great war, there will be casualties, which means that anybody worth his or her salt's got to be willing, has to have the courage to risk being one of those casualties. So we need courage and we need to stand courageously for each other when we come under attack. Not only do I need the courage to speak out, you need to have the courage to speak out on my behalf when my speaking out has brought me into the line of yeah. fire. And too often we're like zebras. Yeah. When the lion pride creeps in and creeps in and creeps in and crouches and then attacks the zebra, it looks for the, the, the young one or the one with the broken leg, the vulnerable one. What do the other zebras do as the lions attack? They all flee. Yeah. And the poor little zebra is destroyed or the one with the broken leg is destroyed and devoured. Let's stop being like zebras. Let's be like elephants. The same lion pride attacks an elephant herd. What do the elephants do? They circle around the little elephant or the, or the wounded or injured elephant. They protect the one who's vulnerable. We need to have the same attitude. We need courage to speak our minds and we need the courage to stand up for people who do when they're under attack. Professor Robert George, thank you so much for giving of your time. And I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure those who are watching are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you very much for, for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash left foot media link in the show notes thanks for listening see you next time on the dispatches mm -hmm.